I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week you have Leo and me, Dave. Hola, I'm Leo. He's Dave. Yep, exactly. It's for clarification. Just, you know, we look so much alike. <laughs> Basically twins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a return guest this week. He's all over single stack uh, or I'm sorry, he's a lover of single stack, and he's all over Instagram and YouTube with videos, really good videos. You should check it out at Tim Heron Shooting. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, Hello, Tim. Thank you for being on. So how have you been? I've been good. Uh, been been busy, uh, traveling uh, all over the country, teaching classes to anybody that'll have me. So... Um, like I said, I just got back from a, from like a three week stint where I've had four classes or five classes back to back that had me bouncing literally from one coast to the other coast and then back again and then back, back a, a, a third time. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun, been, been, been a fun year so far. So you're racking up those frequent flyer miles. Most definitely. <laughs> uh, eventually you'll get a free flight to like, who knows where, exotic <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Guam. Now you can. It's got to be better to fly without a mask. Oh man, it's been amazing. Uh, so I was amidst travel. Um, actually, I was in the Outer Banks of North Carolina when they finally lifted. So my flight there, they had not lifted the ban yet, uh, or the the uh, the mask mandate. It was supposed to be lifted on April 18th, and so I had to fly all the way out to North Carolina with the mask on. And then when I got there, the uh, I, I'd read that the judge in Florida, uh, federal judge in Florida, had uh, had said it was unconstitutional and got the mask mandate lifted completely. So on the way home, it's like you know, <laughs> before I even got to the airport, while I was in the rental car, I was like all the masks I possibly had. And I just like stuffed them in the cup holder, and then when I turned in the rental car, I tossed them in the trash. I was like, man, I'm all in. I'm like at this point, yeah. I walked right in the right in the airport like I owned it, man. It was it was awesome. So. <laughs> It's great to be like back to normal. Tim so. Heron International Airport. We welcome all flyers. <laughs> That's because I feel like I should own a, I should own stock in an airport or in an airline. Yeah, more than likely. Where do you be paying yourself out of when you're home? Uh, when I'm home, I fly. Uh, my my nearest airport to me is uh, Albuquerque, uh, the Albuquerque Sunport. So. Um, Albuquerque International Airport's a you know kind of a small airport. Um, I primarily fly Southwest Airlines, so or I, I try to. Um, I, I'm I'm the biggest advocate for Southwest. They've been great to me. They're awesome, you know, for like uh, for for gun owners and 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 two A supporters, things like that as well. They're pretty easy to travel with. So and they go just about everywhere I I need to go. Um, unfortunately, to get to the Outer Banks last week. I had to uh, I had to fly American Airlines because 
they were the only ones that were able to kind of to get me a schedule that I could, you know, an itinerary that I could uh, I could fly through right. uh, to get me to Norfolk, Virginia and back. So but even even they were they were they were pretty good this time. So. Wow, you were just around the corner from me, about two hours yeah. away. Yeah. OK. Goodness. Yeah, the, and, uh, you know, they initially said Biden was going to um, appeal that ruling. But I guess Fauci came out today and said we are through the pandemic. So yeah. that, that, that should end all issues with masks. Let's hope. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. I think Biden we'll just see. forgot. Yeah. Like, they didn't put it on his calendar, and he just he was like, oh, I'm doing it today. It been uh, 10 minutes. I'm going to have waffles. Yeah, I'm on pancakes. Give me some flapjacks. With my invisible friend that I shake yeah. hands with. Right. Oh, Lord. That's hilarious. All right. So, I was a Tim, I was able to um, jump on your Instagram live the other night just for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to get into that a little bit more later, but I know I went back and I was trying to watch it today, but there was a lot going on, but I noticed that you seem to smoke cigars all the time. I do. What is your favorite brand? Oh man, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> um, so I, I'd say I've got two like favorite brands, uh, like my kind of my go-tos are Oliva Oliva cigars. I, I'm a big fan of both the the uh, Siri V uh, Melania Maduros, and I really like the Siri G line of cigars from uh, from Oliva. And I've been a big uh, a big kind of purveyor of uh, of uh, Padron cigars as well. So kind of my kind of my go to like day to day stick. Um, is, uh, the, the Padron 3000 Maduros. I think those are, God, you can't beat that for like a, for like a nine to $11 cigar. And of course, then just for, you know, I, I'm for the, can be kind of the pinnacle is like the, the 1926 anniversaries or, or the 64s. I, I like, I like Padron cigars a lot though. And I like, uh, Oliva both. So those are my two, okay. those are my two favorites. Same Nicaraguan cigars. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what I was about to ask. Where are they from? Now we know. So, yep. Little little shout out to my peeps. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go put that out there. I might have to now tell my uncle to listen to this one. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That that's where um Leo's parents are from. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I don't just randomly like you know a dictatorship <laughs> in Central America. Uh, you know, we're from there not me just to be very clear i am an anchor baby i was born here <laughs> my parents came here plopped us on american soil and then they were like and we're staying they're like we enjoy freedom bit. so we're gonna stay that's right <laughs> so, <laughs> oh that's funny just just you know I'm 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 citizen. Just <laughs> side story. Side story, though. Hopefully, Leo doesn't get too upset. He uh -oh. did spend time naked as a teenager outside of a jail in Nicaragua. Fact. <laughs> that <Sure>. happened. <laughs> we might. We should. That. That's like a, for the after. After when the lights go out. Yeah. Like we could talk about. But 
that happened. <laughs> it did. Well, we'll have to have a casual shooters after dark podcast. Yeah, episode. yeah, definitely. No, that was, that's legit. No cigars uh, involved, but. <laughs> yep. Now, do you do you like to drink bourbon when you smoke your cigars? I do. I do. Okay. What do you normally drink there? Oh my gosh. What don't I, I drink? I know exactly. I I I am a lover of just about all things brown water. So, um, God, I I've got so many favorites. I don't really have like a particular. Like, I, I do have one particular, like absolute, positively my favorite, um, and that's Elmer T. Lee. But uh, Elmer T. Lee is so hard to get. Um, it only comes out generally. It's only released twice a year, and you've really got to know. You know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody on the inside to oh, uh, to get a, a bottle of that. I, I remember the last time I bought three bottles of that about five years ago. I could buy it for about forty five to fifty bucks a bottle, and now that same bottle is going for about four hundred to five hundred dollars on the gray market. So, wow. yeah, it's uh, I've I've got an unopened bottle right now in my collection, and I will not open it until I can find its replacement first. So uh, I'm, I'm just kind of. I'm kind of all over the board there. I, there's sometimes I like, um, you know, lower proof, you know, 80 to 85 proof, you know, like really easy sipping uh, bourbons, um, you know, all the way up to, uh, I'm not a super high proof guy, but I like I like some, you know, 100, 101, 105 proof uh, bourbons as well. Um, I, I'm kind of trying to name off a few. I like weeded bourbons a lot. So uh, I love... Uh, Gosh, I'm trying to think. Um, Weller is probably one of my favorite because they're, they're that's a weeded bourbon. There's a couple of kind of like smaller distillery, you know, like kind of home home distilled uh, weeded bourbons out of uh, out of Lexington, Kentucky that uh, I like real well too. Um, but I, I'm kind of all over the board. It just kind of depends on that you know that evening's taste. Like, do I want something a little okay. really oaky and spicy? Do I want something you know a little more sweet? with, you know, like some vanilla or cherry hints to it. Um, it just, just kind of depends. And then a lot of times it just, it kind of depends on like what cigar I want to smoke that night too, as to what pairs well with it. So, but, uh, I'm, I'm not afraid to try or drink anything. And, and I'm very fortunate with a lot of my students. Um, okay. You know, like not very often, but occasionally I get students that'll gift me a, a, a bottle of bourbon to take home with me, you know, after hint, class. Hint that so that's, a, that's in lieu of payment we accept <laughs> bourbon a 500 bottle of bourbon. yeah i mean it's gotta be like good bourbon so being from new mexico tim or mm -hmm. at least now you you didn't start there originally but being there now right. how spicy do you like oh man uh i'm a, I'm a green chili fan all the way so look at that Look at the name. Mango habanero. I've never tried that before, but uh, that's got me intrigued, Dave. I'm. Uh, they are they are makers of moonshine, and that's where I found out about them. Right. My wife, my wife and I went to Gatlinburg, and we did the moonshine tasting. When I went to nationals in October, I drove back through Gatlinburg because they also have a. Um, oh shoot. They have a whiskey that's, um, I can't even think of the name of it right now, but it was amazing. So I, I actually swung through Gatlinburg on my way back from Talladega just to go to Old Smoky to pick up yes. some more stuff. 
I ran into that and this is amazing. It's only a 70 proof, so it's not yeah, crazy. Very smooth. But it's got a heck of a kick from the habanero. That's awesome. It's a sweet, hot. It is amazing how well they were able to blend the flavors. Old Smokey's not a sponsor, by the way. But if they want to be, I mean, listen, <laughs> we don't discriminate. We'll, uh, I shouldn't say we don't discriminate. I mean, if like... If a Democrat wanted to sponsor us, we'd be like, um, maybe. <laughs> See, I'm kind of the same way. Like when I travel around, you know, uh, like I always, I always look for kind of local distilleries or things like things like that for different types of, you know, different types of uh, of drinks and things. So right. uh, when I was in Sarasota, Florida, there's a um, there's a rum distillery there, and I had to pick up two or three different bottles of rum to bring home with me. Um, my, my girlfriend, she loves different gins. So she, she's a big gin collector. So and we always try to go like anywhere I'm out. Like if there's a gin distillery in the, in the area, I'll always try to make an effort to stop by, or at least to pick up like a local gin of someplace I've been to bring back. So, I mean, we've probably got 60, 70 different bottles of gin from all over the country. I probably got 15 or 20 different bottles of rum from different places and 40 to 50 different bottles of bourbon from, from places as well. So yeah. Okay. So I have, I have two, two recommendations and this is, we're going, so one, one from Flor de Caña. It's okay. like F-L-O-R de Caña, C-A-N-A, well, Enya, A. Um, it's a Nicaragua. I'm pretty sure you can get it here. They have like a four-year-old, a seven, a 12, and then they have the Centenaria. So like, it's like feet, feet, high, high dollar, right. but uh, they make good rum. And yeah. then if you, I don't know how you guys feel about uh, Lagavulin, but they started making the Botanist. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fan. <laughs> like that is, um, is it is mucho bueno, as they say in you know Scotland. So yeah, if if yeah, if she hasn't tried it, I I would recommend it. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm not saying I have one of those every Saturday, but I might. Yeah, it's possible. Is that the Florida, Florida Kanye? Yes, that is that is the drink of my people, and <laughs> that uh, is good. Leo, that is not cheap. No, I'm. I, oh, I know. Yeah, look uh, at it. Look at. Come on, me, man. Hold on. Come on hold on. Is that twenty five year? Yes. There's a hundred and thirtieth anniversary for ninety nine, and a twenty five year old. We'll go this one. Hey, you know what? A twenty five year old rum for one fifty. I, I've, I've spent $150 on a hell of a lot worse things. Yep. Now I will say like they're, they're seven, they're 12 is still excellent. It is very good. Um, but yeah, them bad boys, I, I'm going to put it this way. So my dad, the, so he used to, we used to go there all the time and uh, my dad picked up a bottle while he was there and I may or may not as a younger child have inadvertently broken it. <laughs> Oh, no. I didn't know any better. I knew I had done oh. wrong because his <laughs> face told the story. He told you. Yeah. Yeah. And my butt figured it out when the belt <laughs> met my cheeks. And the worst part is he couldn't get another bottle. And he has since that time not found that bottle. Like, hasn't 
he stopped drinking. Not, not he's not an alcoholic or anything, but like he just yeah. he doesn't drink anymore because he's old and he takes a bunch of medicine. <laughs> but <laughs> that yeah. doesn't go well with yeah alcohol. Yeah, it doesn't go well I'll with his it. like heart pills that keep him alive. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is is very Flor de Caña is a very good rum. Um, yeah, and the botanist. Those are the the two that I would recommend. Awesome. And again, not sponsors, but if they want to be, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah or even like the cigar like padron if they want to sponsor i'm you know we're not allowed to smoke and we don't smoke officially but you know oh i've i've <laughs> I've, I've been working on a on padron for uh for cigars <laughs> as a cigar sponsor like man i'd, I'd happily wear that logo on my shirt <laughs> yeah wear their hat it. whatever yeah. absolutely listen i'll wear yeah. a mankini if they need me to i don't even care <laughs> I will shoot every stage with a bad boy hanging out of my mouth, if that's yep. what it takes. <laughs> that's right. And we do have someone in Area 8 who does it. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, he looks classy as hell. <laughs> yes, he does. Always has that cigar in his mouth. I don't think I've ever seen him without one. That I can think yeah, of. I don't. I don't, I don't know that uh, I ever have. I've seen him put it down a few times, but I don't think I've ever not seen him with one in his, yeah, in his possession at the time. Didn't, didn't he tell a story about the Steve Anderson class? Where yeah, he had, well, yeah, right? And he, like, Steve Anderson was like, are you going to put that down? And he was like, nope. Yeah, nope. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and and he didn't. I mean, even when I was there when we were doing that one, he. Uh, we're talking about Kevin McPhee, Tim. Yeah. Um. He, you know, I saw him put it down one time when I was at the class. He just set it down for a minute, went and did something, went back, picked it up, kept on going. That's so right. That's the only time I saw him without one was when he would put it down. So he is he is he's a lover of the cigar. I got yeah, I don't know if you want to take them into the porter, John. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to ruin the aroma. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or ignite the methane. Well, there's that. I don't know. Safety third. Uh, now, Tim, I know you were we were talking and you were before we started, you were saying how much travel you have going on from now to the end of the year. I mean, do you even have any openings in any of your classes from now to the end of the year? I do. Yeah, I do have some classes with some openings in them. Um, most every class I've had from, like I said, from January up to now has been pretty much a full sold out class and they're generally sold out three to four months in advance. Um, I'm, I'm working on like kind of promoting some of my classes for like July, August, and September, um, you know, just kind of spreading the word on those. And, and uh, so I'll be in Pennsylvania twice this year, uh, both in, in the Pittsburgh area and then um, pretty near or kind of near uh, the Philly area. Both of those classes do have some, uh, some availability in those. Okay. Um, and then one's later in the year. So I've got a a development course that's almost fully uh, filled out. And that class isn't until like the first weekend of November at Mead Hall Range out in Oklahoma City. And uh, I mean, it's already almost sold out. I've got certain classes that it seems like they fill really, really fast. And then other classes, just especially as <clears throat> like newer venues, places I haven't been before, 
um, have uh, have started to fill, you know, or or starting to you know to get some interest in things like that. Um, I've got three or four classes on the schedule for next year uh, that I don't even have listed on my website yet um, that uh, are already sold out, and they're for, they're not even until like next February or next March. So wow. Yeah, the Prescott class this weekend, um, my two-day, I'm doing my two-day class on Friday and Saturday. It's fully sold out. And then my May 1st class on Sunday, um, that's a co-instructed class with uh, AJ Zito, uh, my Practice with Purpose class. We've got, I think we've got a maximum of 16 seats available for that class. And we've got 14 filled. So we've got two, only two openings left for that class. Um, the St. Louis class coming up next weekend, it's filled. Uh, the Charlestown, Rhode Island class, oh, it's full. Um, goodness. I'm trying to think of what else I've got. Um, Is AJ Zito related to Chuck Zito? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay. No, AJ Zito uh, lives in Prescott. He's a, uh, a master gunsmith, builds some absolutely incredible 1911s, um, and is also a, a national-level trainer. Um, and he hosts me every year in, in, uh, in Prescott. He's my, my very best friend. So not only does he host me for a class, but we also, we also teach joint classes together. So we'll be bringing our joint, uh, two day class called, uh, uh, play for mastery in July on the West coast out in LA. And then we'll be teaching it again, um, out at Shadowhawk defense in uh, West Virginia in October. So, ah, okay. Speaking of which, it was Lynn's birthday. What last this past week? Friday. Uh -huh. I think it was yeah. Friday. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I sent her a birthday I text. Did. I failed to text her and wish her a happy birthday. So she's probably going to murder me when she's. Don't worry, I let her know. I said, I'm like, hey, just so you know, uh, Dave and Tim say happy birthday and Huggy, like, just I covered everybody. <laughs> and also, also, the wife and the boys also say uh, happy birthday. So, <laughs> Yeah, you're good. I got you. Good. Good. So Randy always chokes with me every time I come out there because because Lynn will host me for like a week, uh, a week's worth of classes out there at Shadowhawk. That's one of my 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 favorite kind of staples to go to every yeah. year. And Lynn will host me there for like a week or so. And uh, fortunately, I get to stay in their guest room at their place there. And uh, and Randy always jokes. He's like, hey, man, one more day. You stay here one more day. I'm I'm filing you on my taxes. So as a dependent, and I'm like, well, you know, that's, not, that's, that's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, the upside to that is the commute is real short. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you're like, all right, cool. We're here. <laughs> like if you're late to class on that day, like something happened. Exactly. Like, got stuck in the toilet yeah. or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, they're great folks. Um, and, and Lynn's been hosting me now for, I think this is year number four. Four, I think she hosted me in 2018 or 2019. Maybe it was 2019. So 19, 20, 21. So this will be the yeah. fourth year in a row that, uh, that she's right. in her classes. So October is yeah, a good time right. too. Not hot, not cold. Definitely. So, I think yeah. the first time I taught there was in December. And everybody was like, are you insane? It's December. And I was like, man, and, and honestly, we couldn't have asked for better weather on the one weekend in December wow. that I was teaching classes there. So, well, I just shot Del Marva last weekend and while they were setting up one day, they posted pictures. It right. had snowed. It's snow. And then it ended yeah. up with beautiful weather the, for the, for the two days of the match. So, 
Sunday it was like 85 degrees. That's so it insane. Was hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was nuts. Then this whole mid-Atlantic area, it can be freezing, you know, it can be snowing one weekend and then 800 degrees the next weekend. It's ridiculous. Yep. It's like yep. Satan's armpit. <laughs> Listen, sure. there is something to be said about your dry heat. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like 100%. Like people I'm, don't get the difference. I'm originally yeah. from Kansas City, so Kansas City having you know 70, 80% humidity all the time. So you get yeah. 100, 203 degrees with 80% yeah. humidity. It is disgusting. And yeah, then coming impressive. to the Southwest, you know, where it's like, it could be 102 degrees and then you go find a little bit of shade. I can sit outside and enjoy a beer and, uh, you know, and a cigar. All day. Outside, you know, sitting in the shade at 100 degree and not break a sweat. It's amazing. Yeah. Although I was in Wichita Falls once, it was 111 degrees, and I felt like I was in a blow dryer. Yep, that that yep. was not comfortable. <laughs> but that Wichita that Falls, were you there for a double tap? No, I was actually there for some military training. Oh, okay. So he might have gotten a double a tap, months, but <laughs> he was younger then. <laughs> he, hey. he was he had more hair, and he was a little bit more fit. <laughs> Antibiotics take care of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ask about the training because you have been, um, it seems like your training company, whatever you want to call it, has mm -hmm. really kind of exploded uh, in the last couple of years. It absolutely has. And um, you've been posting um, a, a good bit of stuff on Instagram, some videos, mm -hmm. uh, YouTube and stuff like that. So I wanted to get you back on to talk about some specific things that you've posted. Yeah. Um, and, and in particular, I wanted to start with your, you one recently you put up was strong hand position on the gun. Uh-huh. You did a, a pretty good video on that showing how you're, you know, gripping it and, or, or not even. And one of the questions I had was the way you were teaching it was, it was for single stack is what you were using the example on. Um, does that apply as well to polymer and metal guns? 100%. 100%. That's, that tends to be the, the biggest, um, kind of the biggest thing that I see students struggle with in classes, regardless of like make or model of the pistol, is not getting their strong hand or their dominant hand on uh, like in a good, correct place uh, along the backstrap of the gun in order to kind of to, to better support or build a kind of a wall of pressure along the entire backstrap, which is what helps um, mitigate recoil and, and helps provide, uh, like I said, like extra level of support against the gun to keep the gun from moving around in the hand so much. I think everybody tends to get, especially like from appendix or even from, even from like a side, you know, from a, like a three o'clock or, or, um, or nine o'clock holster position, they tend to, to grasp the gun with their elbow flared, which then rolls their kind of the, the base of their palm down here near their pinky off of the backstrap of the gun. So then they end up making contact with the pistol just between like the web of their hand and kind of the drumstick portion behind the thumb on the palm of the gun. So they end up with this very shallow grip. And a lot of that is done. I see that a lot of that is more done based on like how they're, how they're kind of attacking the gun from the holster with their strong hand. And then also to try to provide more leverage or to 
or to change their hand position on the gun to gain leverage on the trigger because the gun itself is just not fit very well for their hand. So I see this predominantly in like double action, single action guns, such as like the CZ, uh, CZ Shadow 2s, and especially with smaller handed individuals like myself and a lot of female shooters, where they'll buy those guns because they're all steel, nine millimeter, 45 to 48 ounce guns. <clears throat> so they absorb recoil or mitigate recoil very, very well. They're very soft shooting. Yet the shooters will still, they, they still struggle with being able to control the gun. And it's because that long double action trigger, you know, the, the trigger reach when that gun is in double action from behind like the back strap to where the trigger reaches is so far that they have to roll their hand around the gun in order to put their finger in the right spot on the trigger to gain leverage to press the trigger. So when they do that, they end up compromising their hand position. So then the gun itself, they're trying to mitigate recoil based solely on friction, like squeezing the gun side to side instead of being able to apply back strap to front strap pressure and then a side to side squeeze in order to hold, you know, in order to control like every, every side of the pistol, front, back and left and right. So I see that a lot too with, uh, I see it especially a lot with, and I don't mean this just like with women or men, but with male shooters, when they're trying to stuff like, like anything from a Glock 19, Glock 17, Glock 34s, um, you know, there's the new, <clears throat> kind of the new hotness now for like concealed carry, of course, are these Staccato, Staccato C, uh, Staccato XC, mm -hmm. um, any of those guns and anything that's like big double stack with a big grip when the gun is very very close to the body they'll they'll tend to very shallowly grab the gun from the front like from an appendix so they'll they'll lift the gun or they'll lift their shirt and they'll grab the gun from the front and again only make contact with this portion of the back strap to their hand on the gun and then they need to roll their hand to get their hand more in behind the pistol in order to get a little more surface area covered on the gun which would help mitigate recoil more so that, that ends up being one of the biggest detriments to, to a shooter that I see. And that's one of the biggest corrections in grip that needs to happen. So generally when people will grip the gun, they'll grip the gun and they'll end up with their, let me try to line up here. They'll end up with their palms almost with a gap between wow, okay. sides of the gun. And it's because they think they need to squeeze harder with the support hand. And it's really, I need to roll my strong hand in behind the gun more so I can close that gap up and be able to provide front to back pressure this way and side to side pressure this way to squeeze the gun. Interesting. I'm waiting. So, there we go. There. I see yeah. That. So I see yeah, that. I went and grabbed mine so that we could have somewhat of a visual aid. Uh -huh. um, so this is a full frame 320. Yep. Uh, and it's, this is for appendix carry. So what you're saying is because it's like you're saying, it's pressed up against well a little bit lower obviously but right when you go in to grab if you can see i'm grabbing exactly look what portion yeah. of your hand is, that. there we go yeah look what there portion you of your hand is on the back strap and only on the yeah. back strap and look at how the yeah. bottom of the the base of the palm isn't anywhere even near the bottom yeah. of the uh, bottom of the back strap so you're lacking a lot of leverage that you could actually right. be applying to the gun to hold the gun still yeah that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I figured I was like, oh, it's right there. We can probably do this and actually see it. All right. Yeah. 
So Ooh. now what, okay, other than, especially for the ladies out there who shoot or guys with smaller hands, mm-hmm. I mean, other than getting a gun that fits their hand better, what, what do you have them do for repetitions to break that habit? Well, a lot of it is, again, getting the elbow, right? So when you, and I'm going to stand up here just to kind of show. Yeah, yeah I mean. go for it. So getting the, the elbow. So like me being, me, me being left-handed, it's going to look a little weird, probably on camera, but as they go to grip the, grip the gun, and we're just going to consider, we're going to consider just competition, like from competition shooting. Um, so if they come to grab the gun from outside the waistband, look at where my elbow and how it's flared out. So it's literally uh-huh. pulling the base of my palm of my hand off of the gun. So they end up coming on top of the gun, but when they grab the gun, and then they build their pressure on the gun, they end up again with that gap with a gap in between both palms. So they would typically think like, oh man, I'm, I'm having a hard time being able to fight recoil or be able to mitigate recoil. So what do they do? They end up then grabbing a little bit higher and they wrap their support hand a little bit farther forward. They can't the wrist, which also breaks away grip pressure or peels grip pressure off of the gun. And they end up then trying to get, I almost like trying to, I, I always call it like wrestling the hog, right? So the gun is, the gun is really like jumping around. So what do they try to do? They, they try to wrestle even harder on the gun to try to get to, to alleviate as much stress on the pistol as they possibly can, but they're doing it with the wrong hand. And it's simply, if you would just take your strong hand and rotate your strong hand back around a little bit more along the backstrap of the gun, the, you would have more control with, with utilizing less grip force in order to mitigate what the gun is doing in the hands. I feel like too, that would um, cause a lot of anticipation for shots. Absolutely. You know, when the gun's jumping around extra in the hands, what happens? You know, now you feel like I've got to fight it. I've got to fight yeah. it and, and like, right. And squeeze it more or harder. And then the other thing too, is because that pressure is not being provided against the backstrap of the gun with the entire hand, it ends up being just along the palm as the hand is kind of canted this way. So now any extra pressure that I'm applying to the gun is steering the gun. So as a right-handed shooter, you get a significant low left or a do left as they press the trigger. So, and if they would just simply rotate their hand a little bit further along the backstrap of the gun, the gun would be a lot, a lot more solidified in the hand and wouldn't be, it it wouldn't be open for any sort of a manipulation to, to steer the gun left or right when they start to press the trigger. So, uh, I wish I had, I wish I had a pistol here in my, in my hand to show you. So, yeah. So utilizing, so like if the, if this, let's talk, let's just use a magazine here. Okay. So if I grab a little shallow on the gun, right. And I end up grabbing, grabbing the gun with, with the, with just the base of my palm against that backstrap of the gun. And we're going to say that the, the mag base pad is kind of the base pad of the pistol. And if I get, or is the ba- the, the backstrap of the gun, if I grab the gun from the holster and I align the gun out, what you'll notice is, so as I've got the gun, let's, let's consider this the bore of the pistol, the entire frame and bore of the pistol, look where it's in alignment, but it's misaligned with the bones in the arm, right? So now I've got two axis that the gun is, is actually moving on. I've got the axis of the wrist and then, of course, I've got the axis of the elbow itself. So they're not in alignment with each other. So what happens is as I start to fire the gun, I'm having a really hard time trying to mitigate recoil because everything is being fought just off of the tendons 
on the wrist, right? And then we start doing really wonky things like building our support hand on the other side and trying to cam the, the thumb down or lock the wrist out farther even more in order to, in an effort to try to, to mitigate whatever kind of movement we're getting there. So now you've, you've built actually kind of a biomechanical, you're, you're trying to build biomechanical leverage. And unfortunately, you don't have any leverage on the pistol at all because leverage is actually based on force that can be applied to the pistol to keep the pistol from moving. If they would just simply take their hand, right? So as the muzzle is lined up perfectly, if they would just take their hand and rotate their hand in behind the gun so that when they grip the gun, if you would notice now, now the bore of the pistol goes all the way through the bones in the wrist, from the bones in the wrist to the bones of the forearm and into the elbow. So now as they build the pressure on the gun, I no longer have to cam, like even my support hand is not cammed out or trying to lock my support hand. I can actually build my support hand back against more of a more of a neutral wrist angle, which will allow me to clamp more clamping force on the gun where it's appropriate to be able to, to, to keep the gun from moving around more. But it starts with getting my strong hand in behind the gun more so that the gun itself is lined up all the way from the frame or or bore of the pistol is lined up all the way through the bones in the arm. That's very similar to rifle shooting where the more you're directly behind the rifle, the more of your body will absorb the recoil. So there's very little movement in the barrel, but the more you're canted off to the side, the more it's just your shoulder, the more it jumps to the side. Exactly. Right. So think about even yeah. just laying like right shooting rifle prone and then think about shooting even like a carbine, like performance carbine, you know, like if you're trying to just put the rifle, like kind of basically just at the at kind of the, the tip of the rotator cuff, like on the interior deltoid, right? Or you try to find the pocket right in here to be able to rest the rifle, you actually get better results if you are able to move the rifle in towards kind of the top of the pectoral muscle in order to get more of your body in behind the rifle, right? Yeah. The exact same thing is being said for, you know, if this is the backstrap of the gun, being able to get your entire hand along the backstrap instead of camming the hand off like this, I want to get my hand and elbow in behind the gun so that I've got more control on the pistol, more control with less effort. Yeah. And that, that also now makes later on, I had something about strong hand, weak hand, cause I was going to talk about grip pressure next, mm -hmm. but that also explains a lot too, where bringing the elbow in, and shooting strong hand or weak hand only because again, you've got everything directly behind the gun. Precisely. So that whole trying to lock the gun out or not kind of getting your body in behind the gun just a little bit more to build that yeah. support. If you got the gun out here and you're trying to just rely on muscle, the problem is, is then as soon as you start to lock everything out, now all of that recoil, especially if you're not gripping the gun well, that get that recoil is going through the wrist itself. Then it's actually being transferred to the elbow which is out here. So that's going to make the gun lift off and to the right, or if you're right yeah. shooter, off and to the left. And it's also then camming everything off of the shoulder. So you've got three points of different varying axes that the gun can move around on. If I lock out the elbow, then everything is transferred through the shoulder, but not as it transferred to the shoulder, which can go any and all directions, whereas the elbow can only go one direction, right? Depending on where I put my elbow underneath the gun, I'm changing yeah. that axis how the gun lifts and returns in recoil based on how I cam the elbow out or in. So I can either change its 
you know, change the, the, the behavior of the pistol to lift off and to the right or up and straight down. Yep. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so the lesson here, study it. anatomy, you'll be a better shooter. 100%. <laughs> there you go. That's just science, guys. <laughs> I, I mean, if you're shooting like carry optics and, and you're not behind the gun, like, like I have been at times in the past before I started bringing that elbow in, I, I would literally lose my dot. So my second shot, I'd be like, where the hell is my dot? I got to find my dot. That's exactly before right. I, before I can then align it and make the next shot. And then the problem is, is you lose the dot once, right? You'll spend the time to try to be visually patient to find the dot for a second or third shot. But after about the third or fourth shot, and that dot doesn't show back up in the glass because your grip and your structure on the gun are, again, are very compromised, then you get impatient. And when you get impatient, you feel like, I don't have time to find the dot. Let me go ahead and just start working the trigger and see if I can't figure this out mid-spring. And then it right. causes a lot of errant shots is because of an impatience, a visual impatience, because you, you've not built a good structure on the pistol to begin with. That's how you end up using a lot of white pasters. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the other part That's of that too, about being able good. to get the strong hand, you know, better into the backstrap of the gun is if I'm solidifying the way my strong hand starts to grab the gun or grip the gun, and I can build a more consistent grip on the pistol with my strong hand by getting my my hand in behind the pistol. Now, when I start to build my support hand on there, the dot will fall into the window every single time too. So it's not just about being able to mitigate recoil or be able to have more control on the gun. It allows the gun to point more consistently to the eye or superimpose the dot consistently between the eye and the target, making the dot a hell of a lot easier to find or to not lose every single time that you, you present the gun or press the trigger. So yes, it's, it's just all not. about building that consistency in your in the grip and then your presentation and all that stuff. Absolutely. I like it. All right. So now getting to that grip pressure, um, I've heard, you know, several different things. I've heard where uh, some people are like, it needs to be equal on both sides. I've heard where um, it needs to be mostly on the left, just a little bit on the right. So you don't induce trigger freeze. Now, what, what is your philosophy or your thoughts on that? So, yeah, my, my philosophy on it is, is pretty much the same there. Um, like, I want to grip the gun firm, but not hard with my strong hand, right, with my firing hand, because the firing hand has to do two different actions, right? It needs to be able to grip the gun firmly in order to lift the gun, like to place the hand firmly, you know, in the correct location on the gun be able to, to firmly grasp the gun enough to be able to lift the gun from the holster, keep, you know, keep total control on it before, and then be able to place it, you know, or place your support hand on it without any extra movement or change. But the strong hand also has another, you know, like it, again, it has to multitask. It's other task is it has to be able to isolate that finger away from the rest of the hand so that I can then press the trigger as fast or as controlled or as careful or as aggressive as I need to, to make each shot. If I overgrip the gun, like again, because we can only do up to a hundred percent of one task, you know, or we can blend up to a hundred percent of say two tasks together. If I'm applying a hundred percent of my grip force with my strong hand, I've got zero percent left over 
for that finger or the dexterity of that finger to be able to press the trigger without an influence from the rest of the hand. So I can't grasp, I can't grip the gun with 100% force. So at the same time, I can't also just apply just 100% of just trigger press and trigger press only or isolation in that finger, or I lose control of the gun with the, with the entire strong hand, especially on the back strap, right? So it's, it's got to be, it's, it's kind of a mix. So I, I tell people a lot, especially in classes, that it, with your strong hand, I, I use this analogy. Everybody here, and I'm just like, for, for the three of us, right? Dave, I see you've got pictures hanging on the back of the wall there. Do you hang those pictures up on that wall yourself? Yeah, yes. Okay. When you were either installing nails or brads into your drywall to be able to hang each of those pictures up, what kind of hammer did you use? Did you use a 10-pound sledgehammer to do that work? Uh, negative. A uh, much right? lighter weight hammer. Yeah. The, the wife would have been really irritated at you had you used a 10-pound sledgehammer and and right to try to drive a small nail into the wall to be able to hang up those those photos. So you probably used the tool that was appropriate for what you were asking it to do, right? So in this case, probably a 12 to 13 ounce like tack hammer. When you were using yeah. that 12 to 13 ounce tack hammer, are you gripping the living crap out of the gun or out of that hammer as hard as you possibly can? Or are you yeah. grasping it fairly firmly, but allowing the hammer to do the brunt of the work? So number two. Right. So I'm comparing, I like I I try to relate the amount of pressure that I'm utilizing on the gun in order to, again, to multitask and have dexterity in my trigger finger to press the trigger. I want to grasp the, the, the gun with the similar amount of pressure that I would typically grasp about a, a, a like a, a 12 to 13 ounce tack hammer, right? Firm, but I'm not crushing it, right? With my support hand, We've all broken, I'm, I'm hoping everybody here has probably done some sort of a demolition before or broken up concrete or or something where they've had to use a 10-pound sledgehammer for that, right? You probably didn't use that same 12 to 13-ounce tack hammer to break up concrete. You probably went into the garage or you rented or borrowed a 10-pound sledgehammer to do that with. When you're swinging that 10-pound sledgehammer, are you gripping it with the same kind of force that you would that, uh, that 12 to 13-ounce tack hammer? Or you're probably gripping the living crap out of that thing so that you've got ample control over it. So I compare, I compare the, the level of grip pressure that you need to apply to the gun with your support hand. So if you're a right-handed shooter, we're talking about your left hand. If you're a left-handed shooter, we're talking about your right hand. That level of support hand pressure, I want to grip the gun as hard as I possibly can, just like I would grip a 10-pound sledgehammer if I were swinging it for all my might you know, with, with, with my hands as well. So I think of tack hammer and I think of sledgehammer, right? So if I'm gripping the gun hard enough with my support hand, and some people would say, you want to grip it hard enough that the gun starts to shake and then back it off. I am not an advocate of backing off. I'm, I'm not going to back my pressure off. I'm going to squeeze the gun as hard as I can with my support hand. And when I start to see the sights shake, Okay, that means I'm applying every ounce of energy I possibly have or force into that pistol to hold that gun or to vice that gun as still as possible. Okay. So firm with my strong hand and hard as I possibly can with my support hand. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. I can see that. Now, how do you, 
you are you using when you're shooting strong hand only so for you with your left hand uh-huh are you adding now more pressure because that's negative only oh nope. so i'm still gripping the gun right the same way so firm so again that's where it's imperative to have that hand turned into the back strap of the gun so that when i'm squeezing the pistol with these three fingers on the front strap into the back strap i'm simply pulling the gun into my palm right which is kind of locks everything in place, but I'm not going to grip the gun even harder because if I do, what happens to the, you know, the dexterity I've gotten that finger. Now I start to press the trigger with my entire hand. And that's when I'll start to tug shots low and right being a left-handed shooter. This is where I see right-handed shooters. They start pressing the trigger with the entire hand and they milk the gun either straight to the left or hard low and left. Every time they press the, every time they press the trigger. So, the only difference I make, strong hand only shooting, I don't make any changes at all. Like it's the same grip, the same level of pressure is applied to the gun. And that way I've still got the same level of dexterity with my trigger finger to, to the pistol to be able to adequately press the trigger and not disturb the gun. When I transfer that gun to my support hand, now I, I have to tell myself consciously I need to back the pressure off the support hand because mm. I'm asking the support hand to, to do to, to, to do two different functions. It has to grip the gun right. firmly, but not too hard so that I can get some sort of dexterity in that trigger finger to be able to press the trigger and not disturb the gun. Okay. Makes perfect sense. And, and I noticed while you were talking too, you know, you keep saying, you're pulling the gun back into the palm of your hand right. or the heel of your hand. So you're not squeezing with sideward pressure with your fingers. You're using your fingers to pull straight back. So you have front rear pressure. Exactly. Exactly. Support or the strong hand is responsible for applying backstrap pressure and front strap pressure. So as I'm squeezing the gun, you'll notice there's a gap between like my fingers. I'm not worried about squeezing my fingers and clamping this direction into the gun, right? What I'm trying to yeah. do is I'm trying to apply rearward pressure and forward pressure. I'm squeezing this direction into the gun, right? So it's front, it's, it's like fore and aft pressure. With my support hand, when my support hand comes down and crushes, now the pressure it's applying to the pistol is side to side pressure. So the support hand is what is controlling horizontal pressure on the gun, the strong hand is what is applying kind of lateral pressure or, uh, you know, front to back pressure on the pistol. Okay. Pretty cool. <clears throat> Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>